Hello and welcome to another edition of Here's the Pitch here on YouTube and wherever you listen to these great podcasts. Hopefully you think they're great. Hopefully you've come here for the Howard Stern content. There will be more, so if you are coming, I promise you, join me as I'll be adding some new Howard Stern interviews coming up very, very soon. So keep subscribing, keep uh, liking, and keep commenting. Hopefully you're enjoying some of the Howard Stern content. There'll be uh, more added to that playlist of my Howard Stern playlist of interviews coming up. But today on Here's the Pitch, I want to bring in my friend Chris Goff. Used to be a writer for the WWE back in the 90s, the glory days of uh, wrestling, in my opinion. Hello, Chris. Great, Brad. Haven't seen you in a while, but it's nice to connect via the internet today. So we, I will explain to my, my friends and fans here on YouTube and podcast world, Chris and I worked uh, together on a project, I think in 2005, we went to Kansas and Kansas State and did some football spring game stuff. Uh, we had a blast. We had so much fun. And then we never really talked to each other. We would text and whatever. And then Facebook, you know, Facebook's amazing and it shows you when people's birthdays are. And it was Chris Goff's birthday this week. Mine is next week. And I said, I, you know, I've been meaning to ask Chris about his career back in the day, but when do you have when do you have a chance to sit down and talk about someone's career like this? Um, but you had a pretty cool career. So happy birthday, and thank you for joining me again, thank Chris. Thank you very much. I'm 29. That's cool. Is, is that how you remember our, our, our chance meeting? Uh, God, you know, I have you have a better memory than me. Uh, I do remember that now that you say that. Vivid memories are rushing back of that just – stellar Kansas football team that we covered. Uh, that was back when Fox Sports Midwest was doing, they were doing like about a lot, a lot of spring, like sort of previews, right, for these football schools. And uh, you got the luck of the draw to come out to Kansas and Kansas State in the middle of nowhere. And, um, you know, actually, man, Gino was there. So Kansas was actually still semi-relevant. But, uh, yeah, I remember that. Didn't Mangino offer us some spaghetti, like a dinner? And I, I kind of remember him going, hey, you guys want to eat? And maybe maybe he had to take – maybe he took a shit and maybe he showed us his towel after. Wasn't that his thing that happened? To you know, that is one of my favorite stories to tell everybody how he uses a towel to – after he goes to the bathroom, he uses it like a uh, saw blade underneath his you know, crotch and just throws it on the floor for the team's facility guy to pick up. So uh, that is a great story. I was telling you, though, but we, we worked together, but I never really got a chance to talk about your background and how you got into the WWE, WWF at the time, and I was amazed by it. I was always curious about it because it's like it's such a cool gig. It was something as a kid I was like, boy, I would like to be Michael Cole or Jim Ross someday. So it was one thing that I always thought about. So tell me how that started. You, you said you're an intern. Tell me just the whole background. How do you end up working for Vince McMahon? So I went to University of Missouri and uh, went to broadcast journalism there. Knew I wanted to do something in, in television and sports. If I would have known that what I know now, I would have just done a business degree and just done some podcasts on the side, just like everybody else has a sports uh, sports ID. Is this a shot at me? Wait, was that a shot at me? No. No, you were actually in it. I'm talking about when you actually worked for a legitimate television station and then you sit next to a guy that had – you know, Joe's Chiefs blog.net, and he's got a press pass just like you. I'm like, why did I go to school? Anyway, rant over on that. But I uh, went to Missouri after my sophomore year. Um, I was taking broadcast classes. One of the kids that was in my class said, Hey, Chris, do you like the WWF? And I was a fan. I, I, I can't say I'm like in the 80s. I wasn't, uh, I was a big fan, not a super uber fan, but I loved wrestling. I did. And uh, he goes, I said, yeah. He said, well, my parents live in Norwalk, Connecticut. And at the time, I had no idea where that was. 
but it was near Stanford, Connecticut, where WWE was. And he said, uh, my mom uh, cuts hair for some of the people in, um, in the human relations department, you know, human resources. So he goes, if you want an internship, I think we can go and you can live with me and all this. I'm like, okay, great. And then uh, ended up a couple months later, we had applied. He's like, hey, my parents are moving to Minnesota. Sorry, man. And he bails. I'm like, well, crap. So I get this call, and uh, it's from a guy named Matt DeLuca, who was an awesome human resources guy for WWF at the time. And he said, hey, do you want this internship? I saw you saw you were a fan. Uh, we don't really like it when you say you're a fan when you apply to WWF. But regardless, you have a good resume and stuff. Are you still interested? Of, of course. So uh, I asked my parents. It was a non-paid internship. And at the time, Brad, I the only place I could find to live up there was in this guy, this realtor's basement. <laughs> it was furnished. It had like $50 worth of furniture in the entire place. It was a complete, you know, shithole. But um, it was, at the time in 1997, 1500 a month, <laughs> which was crazy to me. I mean, I was paying, at Columbia, we're paying like 450 a month for a four-bedroom, right, at the time. Uh, but uh, anyway, so I ended up going up there and uh, interning in 97, and that, that's what started it off. And uh, it was a television studio. Up there, you had the WWE Titan Tower, which everybody sees on TV still. And then they had their television studio. It was a couple miles away. Their facility at the time, and still is, state-of-the-art. And it was uh, just – that was when internships, Brad, were when I was – they were like, hey, kid, uh, yeah, I want to roast beef on whole wheat and some Cokes. Uh, maybe if you get this right, I'll let you watch me edit the show later. I'm like, okay. Nowadays, as you know, if you don't let the intern, like, get on camera, you're, you're – it's, it's, you know, uh, forced labor, right? So – Anyway, um, that's how it started. Yeah, I got McDonald's for Trey Wingo at Channel 5 a lot. That was my big, hey, go get me a double cheeseburger. So, and Trey, Trey still remembers that. Uh, so you're interning there, and it leads to you becoming uh, a writer. So where, how does this turn? How long are you in? I mean, do you intern just for the semester? Do you get to stay? A lot of times I always, and this is a part of this podcast, I've had talks with people like this. And say, like, get in there. And then stay and just try and work your way in. All the guys that I used to work with at Fox were interns who just worked hard, came in when they didn't have to, and you just see them every day and you're like, oh, we need a guy. You know, let's hire Tim. Let's hire Alan. So tell me about how that worked for you. Well, like I tell people that all the time. Uh, college degrees are great. Get them. They're not worth as much as they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. But internships will get you your first job and intern somewhere you really like. And that same thing happened at Metro Sports in Kansas City. Everyone that worked there was at once an intern. So uh, you're right. So I interned in 97, and then I went up every break after that. Um, I would have, I found other places to live at that point, had some friends up there. So I uh, started full, full-time there right after college in 99. And um, at the time, I had uh, started working for WWF.com, and Shane McMahon was my boss. And at the time, looking back, I mean, I was 21. Uh, Shane was like 30. So uh, Shane is my favorite McMahon by far of all of them. Uh, he is by far the nicest, most genuine guy. Well, who's your least favorite then? Let's go there. Oh, definitely Stephanie. Um, can't stand her at all. Uh, she she led to my demise. And uh, well, we'll get to that. I just I was going to have some fun with it. But go on. Uh, tell me more about the uh, early days. Uh, well, I like to go chronological. <laughs> I understand. Shane McMahon was a great boss. Uh, I, at the time, um, 
this was when, and you know, I went to the internet side because that's where it was all happening. That's where everyone's going. Everyone's going to be, you know, streaming everything. This is in, you know, late nineties. They're still having some buffering problems now, but it took a long time to get that up to speed. But WWE at the time was doing a ton of video content on their website. And I was a video producer. Uh, they had a, they had a video show on there called bite this for many years. And I was the producer of that show. And uh, our host for Kevin Kelly, who is now calling action for New Japan, or he was recently, and uh, and also Dr. Tom Pritchard. Those were, and Howard Finkel was our sort of uh, weekly guest. So I was very sad when Howard passed away a few months ago. But um, but anyway, I did that show and it was awesome. Uh, the the best part about doing that show is that uh, it was still the weird waters of what's what's a work or what's shoot in wrestling, meaning. Uh, if you're not familiar with those terms, that means uh, on the show, do we act like what's on TV is real, like storyline wise, or do we sort of get a little bit more behind the scenes, which is what everybody loves in wrestling now. They like the, the gossipy behind the scenes. It's more entertaining than what's actually on television. So um, Stone Cold and Shawn Michaels both said some pretty derogatory things on those shows, and they both got in deep trouble uh, for, or for different reasons. Shawn came on, and he basically said he was friends with Triple H. He had said at one point that Triple H worked a lot harder than The Rock, and The Rock was handed everything, and that did not go over well with The Rock, who had a lot of stroke, obviously, because he's obviously now he's the biggest star in the world. And uh, then Stone Cold was on there, and we had him on after he was very upset. If you recall, Brad, he walked out because he didn't want to lose to Brock Lesnar. Not because it was Brock, but because there was no buildup. It could have been a bigger deal. He was at the age where he thought he should have not been thrown into something at the day of. Let me ask you about that. Yeah, I want to ask you. So did he? Did you know that he wanted to come on and, and, and unload a little bit? Because you can find this piece on YouTube, and I think maybe even WWE Network. But yeah, he left because Brock wasn't going to – he didn't want to – he's like, there's no, there's no buildup. But did you know that night that he was going to come on, or did he just – how did that work? Do you book him? Do you call him and say, hey, we want to have you on? Or does he call and say, I want to be on. I have some things I want to say. How would that go? I had to get, uh, you had to go through different, you had to go through the right channels to get them on. But at the time, again, Vince was sort of ignorant to the internet at that time, just because it was so new and he didn't really understand what, what would be happening in that corner of the world. He's so immersed in everything else. So, uh, you could get away with a lot more stuff. Wild, wild west at that time. So yes, we knew that he was going to be sour and we always tried to be a little cutting edge on there because, you know, we tried to make the website a little bit more, you know, not just generic, you know, just storyline feeder type stuff so we had him come on knowing that he was upset didn't know how much he was really going to say is he going to stay in character is he going to is he going to walk the political line but he didn't and he said some pretty bad stuff he he said the creative writing was they were horrible they didn't know what they were doing they were doing a horrible job nothing against brock but you know he just went on and on and after that uh we had vince McMahon came on the week after that because vince (laughs) he we made a one of my buddies that was ends up being my closest friend out of that uh, relationship of working up there he did this report every day called the uh, w- the wwe uh, online report or whatever and he every morning would get in before vince and he would go through and scan every news website and he would talk about uh, all the stuff that you know that that was the rumors out there and you know it was a daily thing. Some days Vince wouldn't think about anything about it. And some days the smallest thing would be a huge deal and we'd all have to pay for what we were going on. But this thing was, was Stone Cold was huge. So Vince actually asked to come on and bite this, which at the time when you're 22, you're like, this is huge, you know? So uh, Vince came on and he sort of, 
Can I stop you for just a? Can I stop you? I I all of this is so surreal to me to think that Vince owns this company, but he asked to come on a show that he runs the. Uh, can I? Hey, hey, guy, hey, guys! I have something I want to say. <laughs> Don't you think Vince could just? He could just stop everything and go. All right, get that off. I'm coming. I mean, but that's funny that he's like, "Hey, can I be a guest on this show?" I love it. Go on. Well, Vince is my second favorite McMahon, uh, only because he's uh, he is the good cop to Stephanie's bad cop. But Vince is uh, he is respectful like that. He doesn't um, show. Um, I haven't. Been, I didn't see Vince angry all that often. He usually is very internalizes it for a while, and then you'll figure it out through other cycles how much trouble you're in. But yeah, he was disrespectful, and he, he came on and he um, he refuted everything that Steve said in a nice political way because he knows Steve was one of his golden geese. So, um, but it was fun. That that was what I did for the first couple of years, and then it turned into a point where you know. My buddy and I were huge fans, and uh, as you know, Brad, and I, I understand how these people now, and it's a little different now, but at the time, everyone wanted to be a TV writer for Raw or SmackDown or whatever. That was the pinnacle of a wrestling fandom, and that's what uh, my friend and I wanted to do. So we told Shane, hey, we would like to go do this, and Shane's like, well, sort of like a manager in the major leagues, you're going to be hired to be fired. You understand that? We're, you know, we're like 23. We're like, yeah, we don't care, you know? So... um might as well do it. It was a dream job already at that point. I guess if I lost it, it's all downhill from there. But um, we wanted to try it. So we talked to Stephanie. She told us to, she was had recently been put in charge of creative at the time of television writing. And she told us to um, give her two 10-page storyline arcs uh, with characters that were on the show currently. Just something new that we could do. And uh, we had to submit those. And then a few weeks later, we were both put on the writing team. Um, so this is going to be, yeah, I was going to say, oh, two is when the Steve Austin thing happens. So tell me what you're, what did you pitch? I, everyone does fantasy booking. Uh, if you read any of the websites, sure. so what did you pitch? Cause I'm trying to think back then you had every 2002 is one of my favorite underrated years. And it was like, like my last year of really being, cause you had the rock and stone cold, but Hulk Hogan showed up and Kevin Nash and the NWO, Ric Flair. Like you literally had, this changing of the guard too because stone cold and the rock are gone by oh three now you got brock and kurt angle anyway i digress what did you pitch oh i'm I'm trying to remember uh one was definitely was uh rick flair and david flair there was a storyline there where david was trying to get the respect of his father i remember that was one just germ of an idea and then the other idea i believe had something to do with shelton benjamin who i thought was underutilized at the time which he he always is underutilized athletically but he just could never really cut a good promo but um he uh they were just they were i mean i worked on these big time i mean they were something that we you know you're Talk about stress when you're 23 and you're being asked by Stephanie McMahon to submit two storylines to see if you can get in this inner circle with Vince. I mean, it was a huge deal. I remember we, me and my buddy were, his name is Seth Mates. He, uh, we would bounce these ideas off each other and just read, read my, see, see what you think. And he, he had one about, oh, I know what I had. I had one about Mick Foley and his son Dewey being kidnapped. I remember that. And it was uh so I was I was way more into the I liked the soap opera ish storylines that um you know Were you there with but I was gonna say, were you there? I mean it seems like Russo was gone by the time Vince Russo, the head writer who kinda he was gone by this point. I he left in ninety nines, but you probably were kind of built on that, which is what he was pretty much well, he was doing crash TV, I would say, but it seems like that's what you were thinking going for. 
Yeah, um, yeah, it was it was a little bit of that. It was uh, Vince Russo had left, and uh, I was there literally like two months before Vince left, and Vince and Ed Ferrara were there, and but we barely saw them, and they like passing in the cafeteria at the tower at the time when I was first starting a dot com, but. Um, but they had moved on pretty quickly after that. Uh, you know, uh, wrestling Brad has like been hurt by many things. Uh, political correctness has hurt wrestling a lot. Uh, you know, to get a lot of quote unquote heat in the business, you have to say a lot of bad negative things about someone's weight, their, their, their looks, their background, if they're, their gender, their, you know, their race, even many years, their nationality, all these things are completely off the table now because of the way the world is. So it is definitely her wrestling. Um, some of these storylines they try today, I see. And uh, when they try to do like a, a three way sort of love angle thing, um, that worked way better with like Triple H, Kurt Angle and Stephanie than it does like Rusa, Bobby Lashley and Lana. It just and I think part of that is the crowd now. Brad, it's weird to think, but the people watching the show now were not ever born in, in a world of kayfabe, which where they believed it was possibly real. So when they see a fake love storyline, they just call it out right away on the internet, and it ruins it all. So it's really hard to be a writer now, I think. So you you get you get the job though, right? Because whatever you did worked. So tell me a little bit about this is O two. Um, I guess I'm, I was so interested in the semantics. So tell me how many writers there are. and Are you writing for Raw? And tell me a little bit about what, what goes into this as you, now you're in that room. Yeah, so uh, we definitely were both picked to be on there. Um, I think Seth and I were uh, as creative as anyone on there. Um, you would, And as I tell anyone that wants to be on that writing team now, you, you find out pretty quickly that it's a co- complete collaborative effort, even if you had – the greatest rider in the world walks in that room. He's never going to get anything from A to B without it being just slaughtered a hundred ways a Sunday. So when we walked in there, the brand split had just happened. So they made, it was just raw. And then now they're going to raw and SmackDown because SmackDown had just started. So he decided, you know, WCW goes out of business. ECW's out of business. Now WWF is the only one, only kid on the block. So he decides, you know, we're going to uh, make our own competition, a brand extension. So you're going to have Raw on this side and SmackDown over here. So they cut the rosters and the writing teams in half. So the SmackDown writing team with my was my buddy Seth Mates, David Lagana, who's been in the news recently, um, uh, Paul Heyman, and Bruce Pritchard. That was the SmackDown writing team, and it was so it was basically four people. Which now I've I've heard there's like 20 people on each show now, which would be very watered down and not nearly as much fun as we had. Uh, the raw riding team was myself, Brian Gewertz, Ed Kosky, and Michael Hayes. So that was so it was pretty cool walking in and having uh, sitting in the writers' room with you know eight of us in there, and it's Michael Hay- Michael P. S. Hayes, Paul Heyman, who and I love ECW, and of course Bruce Pritchard. Would, he was in Texas. His wife was having some medical issues, so he would call in a lot, and he'd be at all the TVs and stuff, but he wasn't actually there a lot. But he would be on all the phone calls. And, um, you know, and every week, dude, we would pitch, you know, Stephanie would be in there, uh, but we would pitch directly to Vince every, every, uh, Wednesday. So, um, you know, he would just actually it was on Thursday was raw Friday was SmackDown. So Thursdays we pitched events. He would come in after a workout cause he works out, you know, a hundred times a day. That's, that's, that's real. And he would walk in and sit there and be eating a power bar. And we'd send him our first draft of uh, raw and he'd just sit around the table and he would just pitch segments to him. Like, I was the low man on the totem pole. So I was pitching like, uh, I was like women's division, 
uh, some of like low card guys, some tag team stuff. Uh, you know, Brian Gewertz was the head writer for a very long time there. He works for the Rocks company now. Um, he wrote a lot of the good lines for the Rock, and the Rock's obviously uh, given him, uh, you know, a job for life. I'm sure. Uh, he was the main event guy at the time. He was friends with a lot of the top guys. A lot of people like Brian. And Ed Koski is still there. I mean, he's been there for 20 years. 20 years on the writing team at WWE is like 100. It's like dog years. It's uh, I can't believe you could be there. But Ed's good at staying uh, below the radar, which I was not. Neither was Seth. So this meeting happens on, on Thursdays or Fridays for either brand. So you've obviously had your show. The storylines are already sort of built. So now what are you doing? Like what, you guys are pitching your segments trying to get, all right, let's get to the next week. And pay-per-views are coming. I mean, you have to – I'm just trying to just try to get this – how you know what? How much is being written? Like is it you're, – obviously you're formatting 10 – probably 10 segments, 10, 12 segments for a two-hour, three-hour show at that point. But what are you, you're writing what they're saying? I mean, are you putting the promos out there or does that come on Monday? Give me a little bit about that. Well, let me give you the, the weekly schedule. Uh, these are years that my parents referred to as my lost years because it was such a blur and I was always on the phone and I never had, I was constantly worried I was going to get fired. I mean, that was sort of the environment. I, I hear it's still like that. Um, so on a pay-per-view week, you have a pay-per-view on, uh, on Sunday. So you would either fly out Saturday or Sunday to the pay-per-view town. You'd have a pre-show meeting of the pay-per-view. Uh, which would consist of uh, the agents getting assigned to the matches that, that they're going to have, you know, what's going to happen in each segment, all this, maybe some rewriting. There's always rewriting going on. We would fly. So this is a cool thing. And I appreciate it even then, but of course I didn't, you'll never fully appreciate all these things until you're older, but I'm 24, 23, 25, went around there flying on Vince's corporate jet. And the people on the corporate jet are, you know, myself, there's the, the people I talked about, the eight of us plus Vince and Stephanie, usually triple H would, I'd get bumped on, I'd fly commercial back. Cause it would be triple H or JR. Someone would kick us off and me and Seth would, you know, be fine commercial, which was completely obviously fine. Um, but just being able to do that was amazing. You had these, you know, um, steak dinner every day. And like, uh, you get, I would never drink on there. Cause if you ever got drunk, you'd be in deep trouble. But like Vince was drinking, a lot of people drinking and having a good time on this thing, but we'd rewrite the show on there as well. Um, so you get to the show, do the pay-per-view, do that. You have a post post show meeting, fly to raw, same exact thing, fly to SmackDown, same exact thing. Come back Wednesdays, like fly back time, get back in the office, get ready. Cause uh, you're pitching the Vince tomorrow. Then you pitch the events on Thursday. SmackDown would pitch on Friday. Let me ask you this. Let me, yeah, let me stop you. So Monday, if let's say a paper you have on Sunday. Monday, do you have to really do much because you've get you've written the show, but maybe some maybe someone gets injured. I mean, is it pretty much you've already kind of figured out where you are, so you're always kind of a week ahead, right? I mean, that's pretty much. Yeah, but that- so the Thursday pitch to Vince, you're pitching for this coming Monday. So you're pitching, and like you said, on a three-hour show then, it was 11 segments. So uh, we'd all be assigned like a few segments each. Um, you know, this is this is not a knock and Vince. This is how anyone would be. He really worried about the main event stuff. And then the other stuff, just hope it didn't suck. But, but I mean, he didn't really care if I had, you know, Spike Dudley, I have him taking on Chris Nowinski. I mean, he didn't care about that. He would care, obviously. Well, what's, what's Stone Cold? What's Brock doing? What's, what's Brock doing? You know, what's Taker? All this stuff. That's what he cares about, which obviously that's the money. So that makes sense. Um, so, but the rewriting of that, yeah, the segments are, yes, here's the match, here's the finish. Uh, before that, though, I'm going to have Kurt Angle walk out there, and the gist of his promo is going to be this. And, you know, 
And at the time, everything might be pitched, and you would walk out of that room, and Vince would be like, it's great, let's do your Monday, you know, whatever. And then you get on the plane, and he'd be like, yeah, I was thinking about it. I don't think any of this works. You know, and I'm like, oh, crap. Okay, so we'd rewrite it, and then, like, Monday, you'd rewrite it again. And then you'd have the show, and then you'd be like, we should have just did what we did the first time. You know, and I'm like, and it was just constantly like that. You know, that's why uh, I've heard Bruce say this a lot. He likes live shows because you can't go back. Like, SmackDown was even worse because you'd have to go and post and, like, redo everything that he didn't like that actually happened. So, at least with live, it's done. You know, so, um, but that was fun. But, yes, you're pitching on Thursday for that Monday show. So in a perfect world, yeah, you're all ready to go until it gets rewritten to death and just the minutia of it just gets – the detail of Vince is obviously what makes him great, but it also is like a super hindrance in many ways too. So um, so that was and, – and on Saturday, I was going to end up the week this Saturday, you'd have a conference call from 9 a.m. And I was on that phone sometimes till 3 in the afternoon on a conference call at my house. So Saturday's your off day, but you're really just chained to your phone at your house. So – you know, it was it was a young man's job. I would hate that job at 40. And, um, you know, if you wanted a family or anything, you'd never have one. But uh, but it was it was a very fun job. Yeah. And so what you're doing is, um, you know, how often are you thinking ahead? I mean, do you ha- in my in my mind, if I had this job, which is something I, as a kid, I think I I would have loved. I, I think I in my head I had this. I, I will tell you a little story about my life here that I probably shouldn't tell people, but. Um, me and my cousins created this fake, let's call it wrestling sumo league. And we found people that were a little bigger around the neighborhood. And, uh, but then we found people anywhere we'd go, like we'd go to raging rivers in St. Louis and we'd see a few people and we'd call them the raging rivers. Or we see someone over working on grandpa's house and he's a really big guy. We call him the black block. And then we would create storylines and write them out and had them going against each other. So in my head, I was putting this stuff together. How far ahead are you thinking for your storylines and are you like grouped to like you said you're more of the lower card guys so are you picking like 10 to 12 guys and just saying all right i'm gonna try to like you said shelton benjamin or spike dudley i'm gonna work on getting these guys 12 weeks of stuff and building the marks someone telling you this or is it hey this is what this is my baby i'm gonna try and get these guys over so um you know at that time when there's four or five on each show um of course, you want to get as far ahead as possible. But again, the, the minutia of the work week gets in the way of like long term planning all the time. Now, long term, like it is true at that time, Vince was going mania to mania. So he would be like, OK, we're trying to build to rock Austin next mania. So um, how are we going to get there from here to there? And the overriding storylines that were, were, were looked at, you know, months and months in advance. Um there were th- they, we would work on things. Our goal was to have, if we had tag team women's uh, lower card main event, our goal was to have six months in a somewhat of a shell of a format. You know, like what are we doing the next six months paper? Because at that point, you have a paper view every month. So, what are your main events all the way up there? Uh, six man tag team, you know, whatever kind of gimmicky match in this match, and then find a blow off in Mania or whatever. Um, you would have a, a shell of that. But I'm telling you, the most frustrating thing, and again, this is a creative process, and Vince is uh, second to none on his success. But, um, like, for example, I always bring this up. Eddie Guerrero, we had months of Eddie Guerrero as a heel, Latino heat, just being a – that was like lie, cheat, and steal Eddie Guerrero. We had six months. We were all ready, very excited. And then we were in El Paso. 
and Eddie, basically Eddie's hometown is right around, right over the border and uh, gets a baby face reaction. Everybody loves him, right? So after that show, Vince is like, God damn it. Did you hear that? He's a baby face. So we're like, no, he's just getting that baby face reaction because it's here, you know? And he's like, well, um, no, I think we're, we need to change him baby face. And so we just, okay, take all of that work and just throw it out the window. And that happened a lot. I mean, that for many reasons, injuries, uh, the people listening to the people in certain towns that you probably should, you know, I'm not telling, again, I'm not saying Vince McMahon isn't a very brilliant man. He is. Um, but there was just some things like that, that there's just, I, when you're in that bubble and they loved it when like myself or new people would come in because you're walking out from the real world into this bubble. They're like, tell us what you think, you know, because they're like, you're not in here in our world. So uh, we want to know how the perception is out there in like regular world. And they liked that for a while, but then you get in, you get in so involved in the mechanics of everything. You're like, you just become that after a while. And it's just, that's just everywhere. You know, um, it's very easy to walk in and not understand anything of how the sausage is being made. Just tell people how to make sausage. But, um, you know, it's, you would just get bottlenecked up big time by, uh, so many different things. And a lot of times Vince is a very listening kind of guy and, uh, the last person to talk to him won a lot. So um, that would change a lot as well. So tell me about promos. We know today they literally script them to the word. I think they read them off teleprompters now because there's no audience there. Tell me a little bit about that back in your day. Did you, did you, did Brian, I know you said Brian was helping The Rock. Were those as scripted? I mean, it sounded like there was more of, just get this point across. I'm going, you know, I'm stone cold. I'm, t- I'm coming after you. You're Rudy Pukan, yes, whatever. But, but how scripted and do you write those yourself? Uh, yeah, so it depended on the guy, um, and it's way, way more so now. It's interesting now that we sit 15, 20 years away from when I was there uh, to see how it has evolved because when we were there, of course, everyone was bitching about how it was all scripted, and it was way less scripted than it is now. Uh, scripted now is like verbatim everything. It's like robotic, monotone, and a lot of reasons for that. See, I, I consider the time that I was there, um, I, I was there from 97 to 03. That's really like the last sort of, in my opinion, golden age of wrestling. But you had the Attitude Era and you had the birth of a lot of guys that were sort of still in the very tail end of the territory area. So like the, you know, even like Dave Batista, the John Cena's, the Randy Orton's, these guys at least had a little bit of the taste of like making 20 bucks and a hot dog to wrestle as opposed to like the factory now at the performance center where I understand what they're trying to do, man. Vince has this set up to where you have a factory that you get the 21 year old athletes in there. You get them primed up, you get them out there when they're 23 and they might be done when they're 26 and like, let's keep it going. Problem is they all sort of seem the same. They're all pretty similar. None of them know how to work different crowds because they just haven't been put in those positions yet. A lot of these wrestlers that were awesome in the attitude era were 35 years old by the time they were great. Rock was an exception. Of course, he's an exceptional person in in the world of everything. But, uh, you know, Stone Cold was 35 when he hit it big at WWE. You know, Um, a lot of these guys that just Shawn Michaels was his best years where he was he was older. Um, uh, so, you know, Bret, Bret Hart, he, he didn't start cutting a good promo until he was almost 40 years old. I, he was, and that, that anti-America stuff was the best stuff he ever did. So, you know, the promos at the time were, you know, Stone Cold, if I would have given Stone Cold verbatim this stuff to say, he would have laughed his ass off and, you know, ripped it up and said, Hey, I'll see you later, whatever. Uh, 
Rob Van Dam, he wanted like he's a guy that wanted it. Like, tell me exactly what you want me to say because he didn't want to make anybody mad. Some people were like bullet points. That's what I want. Some people were like, just write out everything and I'll memorize it. You know, it was all across the board. You sort of gave them, and and you knew who Vince was going to give a little bit of rope to, and who he wasn't. And um, you know, because some people would go off the rails and just be out there for way too long. Like, uh, you know, there there was there was several times where that happened. Um, and Rob Van Dam being one of them. Rob Van Dam went really long on a promo once on Raw, and uh, there was this whole section of time there where we, when they introduced the second world championship, the big gold belts. And it was handed to Triple H. I was there during that time. And for we wanted Rob Van Dam to win the championship. This was September of 2002 at the pay-per-view. I think it was Unforgiven. And, um, you know, everyone was in, everyone was in, you know, unison wanting this to happen. And uh, Rob cut a really long promo, went long. That was sort of one strike. And then Triple H got to Vince at the end and said, I think it would mean more if he chased it longer. And Rob Van Dam was never, never a world champion there for, I don't think he ever was maybe later. I don't, I don't recall. They changed it a lot after that, but, um, but yeah, that happened all the time. It did. So promos were, promos were fun to, to do with guys that knew how to do them. But a lot of guys then had a lot more experience doing them than they do now. I like your Vince McMahon impression too. It sounds like Bruce doing his Vince McMahon impression, which is, as good as uh, Vince. I mean, yeah, we're, if you're in a room with them like that weekly, I mean, it becomes a caricature. I mean, uh, you know, the, when they have the, the, uh, fire, fire, firefly fun house stuff. And it's like, that's good shit. I mean, he says that all the time. He does say that. Um, and so when you hear it, I mean, if it's of course become like a joke, but, and it's, 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 it's bumped up a little bit, but not much. That's how he is. He's a character, man. So you mentioned uh, Stephanie, not your favorite. Oh three, it comes uh, comes to an end for you. Give me a little. Bit. I'm now. I'm going to go out of chronological order because I still have a few more questions. Hopefully, you have some time. I know you just had a hot tub delivered. Con- congratulations on that and a happy yeah, birthday. Dude, you need to go jump in that. Yeah. Uh, but so Stephanie obviously becomes the head of creative there. Uh, tell me a little bit about your, your the, the end for you and why um, she's your least favorite. Um, you know. My friends and I have uh, discussed Stephanie a lot and like just the psyche that she must have at this point. Um, You know, I bring this up as a father and you being a father now too, you think of like, I, she, you, you always want your kids to have a better life than you have. That's like the, the thing that every parent says. And it's really hard to not just, uh, it's hard. I think just anyone's hard to not spoil your kids to death. Uh, Stephanie and Shane were born, you know, multi multi-millionaire children and the one of the richest areas in the world and uh you know so obviously their their just demeanor and everything's going to be way different in life um i'm always thinking my general thinking of stephanie is that she's always looking for her father's love and and respect uh because she was put in a position at a very young age that most people couldn't handle um, it's a crazy fast paced world. She's a female too. Um, which at the time was, you know, we had not evolved to where we are in 2020 either. And, uh, she has the sort of the demeanor of her father in some ways she can like just stare a hole through you. And Vince can do that too. Shane is not like that at all. Neither is Linda. You can tell it's like Shane and Linda are very similar and the other two are similar. Um, Shane was more, I always thought I it just always assumed after Stephanie started 
being with Triple H that, and she were not married with him when I was there. They got married a year or two after I left, but uh, they were dating at the time, which was sort of uh, awkward for that family to go through. Uh, one of the boys was Stephanie, but um, I just, you know, they, we just clashed a lot. And I think uh, it's funny. Me and Seth had a pretty good relationship with Vince. And the reason why we did is because uh, we were young and we would have, we were single and had nothing better to do. So we would go to the gym at like 1 a.m. And WWE has an awesome gym. And it's still the same. I saw it on that match where they were wrestling at the, you know, bank, uh, the uh, pole match. The, the, what's it called? The, the ladder match. Uh, the, the one they went through the... Did you watch it? They went through the entire Titan Tower. It just happened. Undertaker was it Undertaker? Not Undertaker. It was uh, I don't. Uh, the one who raced uh, through every floor of the Titan Tower to get up to the top of uh, Money in the Bank match is what they called it. But they went through Titan Tower and they still had the gym there. Is my long way to get to that point. The gym looks exactly the same. And Vince would be there, and we would talk to Vince all the time, and he was super into working out, and he was, like, super cool in this, like, environment of, like, not board meetings, and he was very cool. And he knew us to a degree as being young and nobodies. Um, and so we could, like, talk to Vince in ways that, I don't know. I'm not saying we're bruised, but we weren't – we were just young and stupid. You know, <laughs> like, I just uh, – I look back, and we were just, like, very um, – just naive to what the real world was at that point. Cause we were 23, 24 years old. So I was talking and I, when they would ask me questions and this happened multiple times, my point of getting fired after several of these was that I would, they would ask me a question and I would look around the room. And my thought is if one of us doesn't answer this question, we're all going to be in trouble. But really everyone was smart and not answering because if you don't answer an environment like that, you won't get fired. But if you answer it and it's not any, the greatest answer in the world, it will be a check mark against you. And that happened several times with me. Um, you know, the last being we had a we we had a meeting with the TNN. Okay, and so there was a small period of time where they left USA, WWE did, and they went to the National Network, which they were trying to rebrand after the Nashville Network, and this before Spike. So uh, the executives from uh, the National Network coming in, and Stephanie was like, I need you guys to talk to these people and tell them what you think. And, you know, they're going to ask questions and I, please be honest, answer them, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. And she, you know, she basically said, if you don't answer them or talk to them, there will, there will be hell to pay. So, okay. So they come in and they were nice people and they just, they had asked, like, one of the first questions was, why don't you think we're getting as good of ratings on TNN as we were getting on USA before? And this is after they kicked the uh, ECW was on TNN before then. And they were off then and WWE got that contract. And of course, like the reason was pretty obvious and I should have not said anything, but I did. And I said, well, it's because, you know, you guys have done an awesome job rebranding from the Nashville network. Cause that was a channel that my grandparents watched the Statler brothers on every week. But now you guys are rebranding it to this sort of a man's channel or whatever they're calling it before spike TV. And, uh, you know, I just think there's just not enough awareness yet where it's at on the dial. Like they, they were on channel, like in New York, USA was channel like eight. And TNN was channel like 72 or something. It was really high. No one knew that. There was Bill, USA had billboards, People Magazine, full page ads. Like they, they had a ton more money just to blow on this kind of stuff. And TNN didn't. I mean, it seemed pretty obvious, but I felt like if I don't say something, we're all in trouble. Because <laughs> no one else was talking. <laughs> I shouldn't have said any damn thing. But anyway, uh, I remember that, that happened. We did the meeting. Stephanie pulls me aside afterwards and she's like, 
how dare you talk to our partners that way? And I was like, what? Like, I had no idea that this was a negative at all. And, um, you know, she said, uh, you know, I, we invite them here and that's the way you talk to them. And believe me, I was not being disrespectful. I was too scared to say anything disrespectful. But uh, a couple of days later, man, the HR person knocked on and I knew her. Her name was Palma Brax. And she's like, Chris, can I see you upstairs in the third floor conference room? I'm like, oh, it's over. It's over. The ride has come to an end. But um, and then I was very upset, man. Super loyal, as we all are to our first jobs, especially our dream job. I would have never quit that job. My friend Seth had quit like three months before because he saw the writing on the wall that if you're outspoken in any way here and try to make a difference, you're going to get probably thrown out pretty fast. Uh, so, uh, he left and it was his dream job too. And I couldn't do that. I just couldn't. I mean, I'm sure you, you understand if you got a job with the Cardinals or whatever your dream job may be, you would not, it would take a lot for you to be like, I quit, you know, but so I just couldn't do it. So she did it for me and it ended up being a great thing for me. But, um, but you know, it was, a, it was a fun ride and it was an interesting having your dream job when you're in your low twenties. That's so cool. I, and like I said, I, I've never gotten to really just ask you these questions and it's, it's really an interesting uh, conversation. So I appreciate that. Um, just a few moments. So what was it like when, um, well, we talked about Stephanie and triple H. I mean, doesn't everyone just see what that is, right? Everyone can kind of, Stephanie becomes an on-screen character and right away Triple H is with her. Everyone knew that Triple H was sort of kind of wanting to work his way into this business. What was he like to work with? I mean, we again, everyone saw him kind of coming through and he's not really as um, uh, influential. I mean, he still is in 03, but now obviously he's the next in charge. Tell me a little bit about just working with him and just was there a lot of people going, oh, shit, this, we knew this was going to happen? Um, you know, there was... Uh there was definitely a sibling rivalry at the time. Um, I don't think Shane was super at the time. I'm sure he's coming around and loves him to death now, but at the time it was not seen as like good for business. I don't believe as far as, you know, um, you know, it's, it's hard to have a person like that. That's and, and triple H was, I don't know. Like he's a, he's a great performer and he's a uh, top level star in one of the top eras of wrestling history, but I never really thought of him as stone cold or rock level. He's like a level below that to me. Um, he always had awesome matches with those guys, but, um, I don't know. I just, he, he was, he, he definitely deserves a coveted spot in wrestling. But, um, when, when they were, you know, we would be on these phone calls and Stephanie, like I said, that conference, call would be every saturday instead we'd all be at our respective houses and you know stephanie would talk and stephanie wasn't at the time like really throwing out a ton of creative stuff so um you know she didn't really have to she's the boss and whatever but uh she would talk every once in a while and take off on mute and she'd talk and you'd, she'd hear something and then you'd hear <clears throat> you know, and you know, he's like with her there and he'd be like, uh, blah, 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 blah. and you know, I'd be like, okay. And so we saw more and more of that. Okay. Um, and it's just going to happen. It was just natural. He's going to be in charge. He had a lot of stroke. Uh, I think Vince saw, you know, of course, as we've all seen it sort of play out. Um, it's interesting. Uh, Vince saw that triple H and Stephanie were going to be sort of the, the next creative slash television people taking that, baton and and shane was doing a lot of uh business side stuff like linda does but um 
you know, I think the coveted spot, of course, the heralded one is the side that Vince has that he's going to give to his daughter. How did, who did she replace at that point? I can't remember. Was this a new job, like head of creative? Because It was a new job created for Stephanie yeah. just because she was there. There wasn't, I mean, Vince had left. Vince Russo had left, of course. And, um, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of, like, talented writers there before. Um, there was always like people, you know, like Bruce was around or Pat Patterson was around or, or people that had been there years that, that could sort of be the leader of that and pitching to Vince. I mean, at the time it was more of a, as you know, how that works in corporations, it was a structural addition that wasn't necessarily needed, but it happens when you're growing and you just need more titles somewhere. Uh, and she, of course, she's going to get worked in. She's part of the family. That's what any of us would do with our children. And you put them in a position, whether they're worth having there or the worst person in the world, it doesn't matter. They're going to be there. So she, she was given that title and, um, you know, she had, uh, triple H was pretty obvious. They were together after that storyline that turned into a, a real thing. And, um, you know, so I think everyone respected triple H's mind. But the problem is, is like, and, you know, I ran my own little company too. Uh, and the only thing I can compare on any level of this is I never made myself an on-screen character because it's really hard to be creative with yourself when you're the boss and you're the guy paying people, but you're also like making yourself sort of a star and like how are, you're always going to be perceived as the guy trying to put himself in that position. And that's obviously what Triple H was doing. If, if you had anything that he didn't like, of course, he, that he didn't want to do, he could get out of it. And, you know, that's counterproductive in a way from a creative writing standpoint. But I mean, again, it's reality. So you had to deal with it. Um, but I don't think anyone necessarily loved it. But uh, now he's going to be, you know, I, I've always talked about him now. NXT, of course, has been like the sort of underground people rave about it. Like Vince is out of touch. Can't wait till he dies because Triple H is going to just walk right in and make this thing awesome. I don't think so. I just don't. I think uh, he signed a ton. Like when I see NXT, he signed a ton of guys that were really good on the indies and uh, puts them in matches and makes it a little bit different, makes it grittier and more uh wrestling appeal wrestling less character stuff you know but that doesn't necessarily sell on a you don't get a you don't get a billion dollar deal with nxt like you would with raw from saudi arabia or where you just just not going to happen so this has turned into a money-making business thing for content as opposed to the hardcore wrestling fans wanting their old school wrestling back now it's now it's become a much bigger deal actually after going public. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. I don't watch it anymore. I, I, everyone looks the same. Roman Reigns looks like Braun Strowman. They all look, I mean, obviously one's taller, one's, but they, like your day, you had gold dust and Godfather and Val Venus would come out and people be just, I mean, this is, you know, 15 minutes into the show and here comes Val Venus and the place pops and it, it's just every guy you cared about, even if they weren't in the, in the main event, and so it was creating the character. I don't. I guess that's what's missing most is that, and it, it you you kind of don't want to be 1989 where you got the big boss man and Akeem and you know the guy the over the top characters, but you still had characters. I don't know. I don't know how that in my head is like as I try to recite. I'm like, well, what could they do? I mean, they they had to push. I mean, really, The Rock became The Rock just on his own necessity. He went heel after they tried to push him as a big Stone Cold. Just said, screw it. I'm just going to be myself. But now these guys are like, well, I'm going to be myself. Well, yourself is not – you're not Stone Cold. You're not The Rock. I don't – to me, it's very hard to figure out how to get where they where they were. 
but it felt maybe it was just one of those perfect storm things. Obviously, that's what I was going to ask you about. You had another company that was up their ass up till 2001 or 2000, basically, and then 01, it goes away. What was it like when around there, when uh, the Monday Night Wars are going on? Uh, talk about just how often was Nitro mentioned in some of your meetings? And then as you guys get closer and realize, holy shit, he's buying it, and then it's over. What, what was that time like? around that you weren't writing but you were in the building and you know what was going on what was it what was it like i mean were they literally looking at ratings every tuesday morning like that oh yeah ratings were very important then it was a competitive thing you know we're all competitive in nature to some degree and that was a that was the measuring stick of it at that point even though whatever happened on raw last night that if it got a five or something and nitro got a 4.7 that, that didn't necessarily tell the tale of why it did. It was probably because the last two weeks were better on Raw, and that's why it built up to that. It's not a, usually an instant gratification type of rating thing, as you know. But uh, the reason why I think – some of the reasons why you just mentioned before I talk about uh, what it was like on the Monday Night Wars is that you talk about why wrestling isn't the same anymore. As I said, they're younger now. They don't um, – they their Stone Cold was awesome because he was 35 and like could have that kind of experience of life to be pent up and pissed and have these, I, and be that way. And I hate to interrupt you, but I was going to say this earlier. Look who's basically main eventing right now. Randy Orton, Edge, AJ Styles, 42, 43. I mean, any of the guys they have to bring back because it's like those were the guys who knew what they were doing. But to your point, it's like you almost do have to just go through the minor leagues. But I – I did want to mention, it's crazy to me that you look and you see, oh, Triple H still has to go out. And they, this whole Undertaker keeps coming out because they have no one else to really push guys. But that was my well, little... Well, it's hard. Everyone likes to say that WWE can't make stars anymore. And you can argue that, definitely. But the problem is, is that the... The, the last time they had major, major stars, like I said, you got some tail, you got some guys that will always rise to the occasion. Randy Orton wasn't in the minors for forever. He was, I watched him in South Broadway over there when, during college over there in St. Louis. But uh, he, but he did have his father, and a lot of these second or third generation guys definitely have a lot more of that instilled in them than someone just coming off the street. Um, but you know, I, they they don't have the experience, they don't have the ne- the necessary learning times to go to these different. You know, we talk about if you back in the day, you go to Memphis, you're doing like crazy matches, but you go to you know Florida or Kansas City or St. Louis. St. Louis is going to be way more traditional wrestling, hardcore. You know, like shooter style, not hardcore, but shooter style wrestling. Um, and then you know New York's different than California. You would learn how to just play up all these different things, and it made them such a more well-rounded person. Now they don't have that anymore. So these 22-year-olds don't. They just they're just too inexperienced. And also, you know, you talk about everyone looks the same. That one thing that creeped in in like the late in the 90s into the 2000s is the UFC. Like everyone, UFC was so popular. So then it started being like, you're not going to have the uh, Val Venus gimmicky stuff. You're going to have, I'm Randy Orton. I'm tough. I'm Brock Lesnar. I'm tough. Everyone's tough, tatted, head shaved. Look at UFC. UFC is boring now to me because they all look the same. UFC 1 through 10, awesome. Because you have sumo guy taking on the kickboxer, and that was very interesting to me. A guy that now a guy, a guy, tatted, they all look the same. Uh, as far as a wrestling guy is concerned, it's not as entertaining to me anymore. And um, so the gimmicks are dead. Uh, to me, the way to fix that, I've always told this to my buddies now, go back to the kid stuff. 
go back to like 1987. You're going to have to build it back up from the ground up. They'll never do that because they make too much money now. And I understand financially why they wouldn't do it. But I do think if you went back to gimmicks again of like sort of Saturday morning cartoon wrestling, and then the kids watch that, the parents have to go take their kids. And then it just sort of starts blending in with each other. And it's not sort of like UFC light now where, uh, your target audience is like, you know, the ECW crowd, which is like a small audience, but small, but loud. And they, you know, the, the adage of guys living in their mother's basement when they're 30, that's sort of like who watches wrestling now, uh, to a large degree, not families. Right. So, uh, if you want that, but they'll pay more, as you can tell, if people now pay more, they will, they have more access to wrestling. So they will pay hundreds of dollars to go to a show as family that has like four kids and i need to pay you know ten dollar tickets to go but anyway the monday night wars was awesome i was at wwf.com uh at the time like i said we were still trying to find our niche are we shoot or we work are we trying to work with storylines are we talking about stuff happening outside the business now all the guys working in wwf.com at the time were all like my age they were all 21 to 25 26 years old so young attitude understanding the internet at that time um we would I, you know there were specific times when we would all watch nitro like when the ultimate warrior returned to nitro uh to take on hulk hogan i mean those kind of things and he's another guy he went like 30 minutes over in his promo segment there and it just ruined the entire show um we would watch those things and it was hugely competitive um at the you know 97 i always think is I always say 97 is my favorite year in wrestling. Just so much awesome stuff happened that year. Uh, and both sides, all sides, ECW too, WCW, WWF. But um, it was just, it was a fascinating time to be there because everyone, like you said, the world was like, I, I just remember things that happen now as a parent, I look back, I was like talking to my parents at 23, 22 years old, telling them like, no, it's okay. Mark Henry, he found like this gal that's the, that's a, she's a trans and like, you know, he's, he, he found out she had a penis, but it's just all fun and games. It's like for, it's adults. They're not doing it to get all this stuff. I'd say, you know, uh, all the stuff that I used to talk about, about Venus with, with, uh, you know, the porn stars and just choppy, choppy pee pee that everyone remembers that like all these things that were crazy. Now I look back and I'm like, yeah, I can't believe that Like I was trying to say this was okay. I would never want my children to ever be around this now. But uh, at the time, it was just so fast-paced and reality shows were super new. And um, that kind of like you call Crash TV was just popular at the time. And they, they really did well off that. So do you have uh, – can you text Vince – can you call Vince? Can you get Bruce on the line? I mean, how, how connected are you with these guys still at all? Um, I still talk to people like, like I got, uh, reacquainted with Bruce when he first started doing his podcast. Um, because you remember at the time you, <laughs> I hadn't talked to him in a while. So if you could buy a shirt from him, he'd call you. So I, he called me and he knew it was me. And, uh, so I have his number and I've chatted with him multiple times now because I'll go to like the cauliflower alley club out in Vegas and see if he's coming out there or just, you know, say hi. I, I talked to Dr. Tom Pritchard a lot. He's probably one of my, still one of my good friends in wrestling. Um, the reason why I got to know him so well is because at the time before the performance center and everything, when I was interning at the television studio, you know, you have the offices and the studios, but on the other side, you had the warehouse, the mail room, all that, and the wrestling ring. So he would be out there training up and comers like they were obviously top of the line. Um, 
the first summer there, Drozdoff was there. Darren Drozdoff, and uh, you know Sean Stasiak was there. Uh, Giant Silva, who was in the Oddities, was there a lot when I was there. And then they'd have Dory Funk Jr. and they'd do their Funkin' Dojos in this warehouse. Like, I mean, you know, it seems archaic now, but at the time, that's what they did. They were the top. They were the top dog, and that's what they did. They didn't have a power plant. They had that. But uh, Kevin Kelly, I still talk to, and um, you know, Michael Hayes. All <laughs> Michael Hayes once spent the night at my parents' house, and it was one of the greatest stories I tell people, just because having him and the whole. The whole picking him up at the airport bar and hanging out with them until like wee hours in the morning and then him needing like roughly 45 minutes to sleep before he like pounces up acting like nothing happened and he's having coffee, like four pots of coffee with my parents. Um, you know, that was a awesome story. Um, and I and I, I could still pick up the phone and talk to him. Uh, Ed Kosky, still on the riding team. I don't talk to him much. I mean, you can't. You don't have a life when you're on there. Um, but, uh, thanks to Twitter and social media, I, I do talk to these guys a lot more. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't have Vince's number. I, I took that off. Is he, and it, is he nuts? Is he, is he a creative, creative genius? I mean, give me your Vince McMahon bite-sized biog biography for someone who's been in that room with him. Cause it, you know, someone like me, I'm like, that guy's, he's freaking nuts, man. Um, you know, there's people that are just driven to be the best at what they do at any cost, and he's that guy. I mean, there's people where we all know probably I've met a handful of people in my life that you look at and they're like, he's the the most competitive, driven person I've ever met in my life. I've met, a, like I said, I've met a few people like that. My dad is very driven. He had his own company and all that. But my dad would not sacrifice everything to be the best at it and and vince is that that level i mean you have it's sort of like I, I i put vince up there with david letterman or um you know probably lorne michaels or you know people that are in these uh, things that you know david johnny carson and dave letterman you hear like their family like i'm not saying this about vince but their families don't like their kids don't talk to them all this stuff why because they like live their job their entire life and vince did that and vince to his credit like his kids still love him and like he sees his grandkids some i'm sure uh i mean he talks about him but i you know you just there's that special kind of person man that you would just be like um i do have family but i am going to be on the road for 50 years in a row and do this and be the best at it and no one's going to surpass me and i just the competitive level of that is just so unequaled by most people in this world just because different priorities you know i can't say he's wrong i would never want to do that because I, I like taking vacations and seeing my family and doing stuff like that he's just not wired that way and so that therefore um you'll never out you'll never outwork him i've tried yeah i've learned things from vince i've done things in my own life that that i you know i try to be like him like anytime i have my own company of any sort i always make sure that i do everything and can do everything and will do it to show anyone around me that you're not going to outwork me because I know how to do this. I'm not going to be the kind of guy that's like, yeah, like I don't know how to do that, but I own this place. So you do it. Um, Vince knows how to do everything and he works harder than anybody and he doesn't sleep and he does this all the time. So if you're just like 22 and Vince is 50 or something and you're like, God, I just need like a weekend off. You know, he doesn't have that. So it's sort of hard to be like, can't you just give me a weekend off? But um, I don't know. It's just wired differently. He's he's not crazy. He's just, I mean, just driven more than anyone you'll ever meet. I, yeah, I don't know why. 
I've, I've loved this conversation, man. I hope you enjoyed it. So you, you moved on. You went did some TV work in Kansas City. Talk about, if you want, what you're doing now and what you did. with You did kind of have a wrestling organization there for a little bit. You know, if you want to talk about any of that stuff. Yeah, it's just um, what the only thing I did. Uh, wrestling was such a big part of my life, and it just was like a formative time in my life there that when I came back here and I started working freelance and then full-time at uh, – at an all sports station here in Cable in Kansas City, and that's where I met you through. But um, I did that, like I said, I was broadcast journalism, so I worked there for 13 years or so. And um, at the time, I, I just missed wrestling and I had a lot of connections there still. So I would run a uh, little independent promotion around here called Metro Pro Wrestling. It was on the Kansas side, and I brought in a lot of old-timers that I loved when I was a kid. Um, you know, the demolitions of the world and uh, Jim Cornette and these people came to these shows and and we would pack this like little rec center and uh, that kept that scratched my wrestling itch because after I got fired by Stephanie um, and moved back home, uh, I didn't watch wrestling for like two or three years. It just it was just so burnt out and I just couldn't do it. Uh, but I missed it after a while. And then um, so anyway, I went to the traditional route of wrestling, then TV, then now I run a winery. So, um, so that's, that's how it's now become a winemaker and, uh, and I'm, I get to do creative stuff with wine and the labels and have fun with all that. You know, there's always creative stuff that you can do with things. And, um, now I'm like literally a mile away from my house is the winery and I have two young kids. Um, folks, if you're having children, there's a lot of pros and cons to having them young or old. But uh, some of them are bad. When, see, I wish my kids were like 20. They could help me a lot more. They're like 10 and 4. So um, so I have like less time to be driven like Vince McMahon because I'm worried with them all the time. But, uh, but you know, it's, uh, I've enjoy, I enjoy talking about my wrestling background. It's fun. Uh, I, I, I do believe that was one of the best eras to be a fan and to be working there. Um, I look back and like see how lucky I was that I could pitch directly to Vince. And now I hear there's so many layers of stuff before, like these guys that work there now don't get that kind of FaceTime with them. Uh, being able to work with someone like that and just seeing how someone like that operates and just, you know, it does motivate you to, to do things in life that you probably wouldn't, if you wouldn't have met him. So, um, so I, I look back with the fond memories and, and a lot of great stories for, especially people like our age that, Grew up and just like, you know, anytime I say that I worked then, they're like, did you meet The Rock? You know, that you get that stuff. And of course I did. Yeah, he was awesome. You know, they, Rock was one of the nicest guys in Hollywood. Now he's a nice guy in Hollywood, but he was, uh, Rock was one of those dudes that would remember your name. I mean, Stone Cold was the biggest star, bigger than Rock he was in that world. Uh, Stone Cold wouldn't remember my, my name. Like he, he was, I would see Stone Cold walk into, um, I would see Stone Cold walk into a into the television studio once in a while, and he was like pulled in so many directions. Like it was hard to understand how that man could like function a normal life in any capacity in those years. Uh, he was just so damn popular. Rock came along later, and uh, he would probably still remember me to this day. That's just the kind of dude he is, and that's probably why he has tremendous success because he's just, <laughs> you know, he's a charming guy. He is so. Uh, but yeah, I look back to him in fondness and, uh, you know, it's, it's fun to talk old school stuff with guys that, again, that never remember those days. I do. You mentioned all the nice guys. Who was a jerk besides Stephanie? Who's the, who's the one you're like, ah, screw him. I'm not writing for him. Uh, well, I, of course I'd never could do that. Uh, I could never say that, but, um, 
Well, Paul Heyman was a huge jerk. He was. Uh, I grew up loving ECW. So, um, you know, when I went to live in Connecticut, it was on the MSG network at 1 a.m. So that's when I watched ECW. And uh, I had never seen it before. I just heard about it and I had gotten some pay-per-views. So when I watched it, it was just unbelievable just because it's so like the hidden fruit, you know, like it just you just got to watch it. And it was so different and gritty and produced well for TV. And it is such a like cult level. Uh, but when you actually met Paul, Heyman, like Tommy Dreamer, awesome dude. I, that he's a friend of mine. I talked to him a lot now. Uh, Paul Heyman, huge jerk. I mean, like he, he was just, he, he was just, I, I never saw the creative genius side of him. He was a hell of a motivator. Hell of a, like that guy could talk um, anyone to do anything, but yeah, huge jerk. Um, I loved Jim Cornette. I know so a lot of people hate him. I love Jim Cornette. Uh, and uh, I loved um, my favorite wrestler of all time. I think he's the greatest of all time was Shawn Michaels. And I know he was, he went through phases, but much like, hair metal people and rockers before nineties and before Brad, uh, Shawn Michaels was awesome. Just like those musicians, because a lot of those wrestlers were because they were on drugs. <laughs> so now they stopped taking drugs and they're not nearly as interesting or cool or legendary. I'm not saying I want you to die. Cause I don't want you to die by taking drugs, but drugs definitely help make Shawn Michaels hair metal bands or bands before hair metal. And a lot of the, the, you know, the guys that have all died at the age of 40 because of over steroid use. I remember those people tremendously because they were freaks and they were, they were messed up. Like, I, I know it's horrible to say, but that's just what it is. Some baseball players too. I think back last question. Cause I, I have to ask, is there any story that I missed? Because I don't want to leave. I've kept you longer than I expected. I've enjoyed this. Michael P.S. Hayes in the bedroom. I know that's fairly, very funny and a great story. I don't want to leave without you saying something. Oh, yeah, the time Vince McMahon uh, helped me spot and I went 300 pounds on a, on a bench. Is there anything you may have missed or a story you want to tell before we wrap up our wonderful conversation? Well, you know, do you know Katie Vick? I remember that storyline, yes. I know that's with the, uh, well, uh, Triple H and she was in the coffin, I think, right? And is that the. Yeah, so. Um... So my favorite stories to tell, some of the things that happened when I was on the creative team, Katie Vick, that was the uh, girlfriend of Kane who he killed accidentally in a car wreck. That's when we were doing background <laughs> storylines. Uh, we did the Billy and Chuck gay wedding. And uh, then we did this other one with Tori Wilson's real life dad, Al Wilson, was in sort of like a love angle with Don Marie. Um, and there was like crazy and HLA, hot lesbian action. I was there for all this like really weird, goofy stuff with Bischoff and all that. Um, but my favorite story to tell is the Katie Vick story because at the time Kane was coming back from injury. He had torn in real life. He had torn his, um, his tricep or bicep, one of the two, and he was coming back. Now he had been friends with Lita before, like sort of girlfriends, sort of casually on score storyline wise. And, uh, we were like, uh, so we were on one of those five hour conference calls one Saturday and Vince is like, it's just raw. It's just the raw guys. Cause I was on raw. And uh, he's like, let's spend the next five minutes talking about how we're going to bring Kane back. I'm like, okay. Uh, so, again, it was one of those, like, five minutes of – it was like crickets. It was probably ten seconds, but no one was talking. Stephanie's on there. I just feel like I'm in trouble if I don't say anything again. So I said, hey, um, why don't we – do a storyline that he's addicted to painkillers because he was rehabbing his torn bicep and she's trying to get him off these painkillers. Lita, right? 
and uh, it was just an icebreaker, whatever. Um, and uh, it, ah, nah, 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 I don't think so. No. Okay. Um, she's like, no one else really said much, really. Uh, and so then he goes, "How about this?" And so Vince lays out the story. And this is a time where it goes up and down, but Vince likes to go at the time. Vince liked to go it, weaving in and out of. God damn it, we need to have backgrounds on these people. We need to know more about them outside, why they are who they are, stuff like that. And, like, you can see that come in and out of wrestling all the time. But this is one of the signs where he needed backstory. So he's like, so Kane was disfigured in the fire that burnt him as a child. So he's only had one girlfriend that has loved him even though he's scarred horribly and no one even wants to look at him but this one girl katie vick well at the time we didn't know her name this one girl was going to uh was going to take him to prom and stuff because she was the one that his one true love and she loved him just for him blah 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 and so they're driving to prom it's a rainy night the roads are slick he loses control he crashes the car and katie dies this girl dies like, we're, you know, I'm just thinking they're like, well, yeah, okay, cool, you know, whatever. And it's your company, whatever. And um, so what's really funny is if you remember, this is super inside baseball, but if you remember Raven's Flock in WCW, he had a guy named Sick Boy. Mm -hmm. And uh, his real life name was Scott Vick. And Scott Vick was, we when we were talking about doing low cards and stuff, I would always have a sheet of paper, we all would, of uh, people that were in the minors, developmental league, stuff guys we could bring up at any time and they were ready. You know, Nick Dinsmore's the guy, yeah, there was a bunch of people at the time that could be brought up. And uh, down there was Scott Vick. And uh, Triple H was like, yeah, Scott Vick, you know, he might be able to do that, you know. And uh, so we're like, okay, um, have you seen him? Well, yeah, I saw him. He's in pretty good shape, you know. Okay, well, cool. So we're going to make it Scott. Maybe we'll do this angle with Scott Vick with Kane. And so that's how she got the name Vick. And then my friend always, this is his joke. It's a joke. But he said the only contribution that Stephanie ever made to creative was that she's like, I think your name should be Katie. <laughs> so we, so she became Katie Vick. And uh, so then, so Katie Vick was their name and Scott Vick was supposed to be involved. So the funny part is, that we get to TV and Scott Vick's brought in, you know, and Scott Vick looks like absolute shit. <laughs> and so they're like, he's not going to go on TV. So no, he's out of here. So he, I was like, did Scott Vick even know this person's name as his sister in real life? And then, uh, so then they went and they, Bruce and Stephanie and Triple H, they all shot this, and Brian Gortz, I'm sure, uh, they all shot this vignette off-site to introduce Katie Vick. And the week before, Triple H had come out at the very end of Raw and said, Kane, Kane, I know what you've done. I know what you've done to that girl. And I'm going to tell you next week right here on Raw. And it was because he was going to say that he had killed Katie Vick in that car wreck. So the next week, Katie Vick is like... he come, There's a vignette shown, and it's, uh, you know, Kane in a funeral parlor... And uh, he, like, opens the casket, and it's a mannequin with Katie Vick's cheerleader outfit on. And he gets in the casket and starts a, a necrophilia angle here with Katie Vick. And uh, then uh, you, you see all the traditional, like, cartoon things, like, like drills drilling and, you know, hot dogs in the bun, all stuff. And then, like, he takes his mask off and his Triple H, and he pulls out, like, some gunk that looks like spaghetti or something, throws on the ground. He's like, I just screwed your brains out, Katie, you know. And it was like super poor taste. How the hell did we go down to this angle? And um, 
Everyone remembers it being one of the worst things ever, and it was. It was horrible. It was sort of dropped after that because, let's see, we got Scott Vicks not even involved anymore. We went down this weird road in the funeral, and, like, where are we even going with this at this point? So it goes Triple H and Kane obviously started something. But that's, like, people don't really understand the, the like, the, the seed of that was so – that's how it goes. If you go into a story in WWE circles writing, it starts with that, and it ends up with that. And that's that's a typical thing, and so um, you know that was that's that's a fun story to tell because everyone knows that knows that story, um, sort of wonders why the hell that ever happened, and that's why uh, Billy and Chuck they were the gay wedding. Um, that was when Bischoff was the minister, and he had this awesome prosthetic stuff, and no one shoot knew that it was Bischoff. So he's walking around all day. Hey, how's it going? As the preacher, and they're like, Hey, sir, thanks for coming. You know, they didn't know it was he, they did a great job. And then, you know, the, the funny part is they went on, like, Good Morning America or something the week before, Billy and Chuck, and they, they accepted a gravy boat from Glad, who were like, thank you for progressing our cause, you know. And then a week later at the altar, Billy and Chuck are like, what? what? No, we're not gay. We're not, we're not getting married. And, like, totally crapped on the whole gay thing. And uh, that's disgusting, you know, whatever. So, like, glad one of their gravy boat back. They were furious. I mean, there's stuff like that happened all the time. And, uh, you know, since they went public, that kind of stuff is harder to do. <laughs> you know, like, I do think going public sort of was uh, sort of a turning point just because, like, you have a lot more people worried about what you're doing than if it's a mom and pop company. But, um, you know, it was uh, – those are the kinds of stories that happened, and uh, they were all before I was 25. So it was, it was fun. What a, what a fun – trip down memory lane chris this has been awesome i we may have to do it again sometime because i have i have i have more questions on this legal questions but i i think an hour is enough i think i have to eat i'm hungry i think i've worn you out uh you have a good you do this wonderful uh you get into character right away you could have possibly i know you're a big strapping young fella you could have possibly jumped in the ring right did you ever uh i tell the story you know um miranda gordy it was Terry Gordy's daughter. She is. Uh, she. You didn't try necrophilia with her, did you? I didn't. Okay. I didn't. I didn't. Um, but she's uh, made me think. I told her this story the other day. When Michael Hayes, I was nineteen. Michael Hayes met me at the TV studio, and uh, I was a big kid then. I was. Uh, he said, "Now I'm just going to tell you this once. Do you think you want? Would you like to be or try to be the next Terry Gordy?" And I was like, uh, no, no, I don't, I don't need to wrestle. Like I, I can contribute, I think in other ways than wrestling. So I just, I'd rather not do that. No, really in my mind, I, I probably couldn't be, I couldn't do that anyway. But, uh, but secondly, I was just like, even at that age, I was like, are you kidding me? I don't want to have a broken back and be in a wheelchair when I'm 40. But you know, that's that, you know, it, that was flattering. He was nice asking that, but he did, but, and that was really cool that it even thought that he would even you know, I was just a big, I was just a piece of meat at that point. Right. But, uh, but anyway, so yeah, that was, um, that was, that, that could have, I guess that could have happened, but it did. I wanted to be a heel manager, just that uh, sniveling Harvey Whippleman, just sort of out, you know, sure. that's what I, I still could be. I think I'm still a heel again. I, still well, well, maybe we'll do this again. Cause like I said, I, I, I enjoyed this. It's been oh, 15 years since we've chatted this long, probably. Oh. Well, oh yeah, it's this long definitely makes me sad. But we'll now we'll continue. 
so happy birthday to Chris. I thank Chris, and uh, thank you for watching. Here's the pitch. Again, sponsored by Masses Restaurants. Five locations, stlmasses.com. Find their menus, directions, all the stuff you want to know about my favorite restaurant, my title sponsor. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.